and welcome back to this special series of the Food Foundation's Right to Food podcast in collaboration with Delicious magazine. I'm Julie Smith and I'm helping a group of young people who campaign for a better food system to look back over the last year at some of the failings that COVID has revealed and how to fix them. We're unpacking that food system this week as we explore how carbon labelling and a local food economy could change the world. And we may just have found the answer. How are you doing? Oh, good morning to you. Thanks for coming out on this lovely day. Better than last week when it was blowing a gale, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. So we've got some lovely stuff today. We've got everything you could possibly want to go with your salad. We've got maluba, we've got mustard leaves, we've got chickweed. We've got... We'd already worked out that so much of what we want to change about the food system is interconnected. If we improve wages, people can access healthier food, which means they become healthier too. Healthier, happier people have more time to care about the environment and food justice all over the world. Georgia and Saban are just two of the 426 young people aged between 11 and 24 who the Food Foundation consulted last year and one of the final 20 to present fresh new policy ideas to MPs, changemaker retailers and Henry Dimbleby's National Food Strategy Team. Um, I'm incredibly lucky to have been asked to, to lead this work on the National Food Strategy by the government to try and see how we can take our food system so that as well as giving us lots of pleasure, it also does us and the planet good. And I, you know, we have a system at the moment uh, that is not sustainable and we need to work out how to create a food system that does both us and the planet good. And I'm really hoping that you're going to give us some of the answers today. I'm really, really excited uh, by this session. So thank you so much. After a weekend of Zoom brainstorming, these young people had worked out which food issues were for them the most important to present to the people in power. Poppy. You can't just make unhealthy food more expensive. You've got to make healthy foods slightly cheaper. I'm Izzy and my husband's idea was to encourage producers and manufacturers to become more sustainable which would save them money and create a more of a um, circular food system rather than a linear one. Georgia. As a group, we decided that importation is a massive um, problem. We think that this is an important issue as food miles is a massive contributor to our carbon footprint that not many people really notice. Each imported product should show the miles of transport on the packaging so people are aware of this issue. And joining the dots... Food justice. If people are importing food from other countries and it is cheaper, even though it's come a further distance, it means people aren't getting paid enough in that foreign country. By not contributing as much to imported produce, it shows that we will not stand for cheap and unjust labour. Sharon Hodgson, MP, had lots of questions, but in the end, it all came down to one. Ranking. If the government had to pick an order for how healthy it is, the impact on the environment or how affordable it is. Would anyone like to come in on that? Does anyone have a strong feeling they would like to share from the young people to answer that question? Um, I feel I think the environment's the most important because you can work towards whatever you want to work towards, but that will all be over if you do not protect the planet. Henry Dimbleby fanned their flames as the session closed and he took his notes back to government. Every single thing in the world is changed by a person, not a policy. So get out there, take this energy and change your world. And that, in the end, will lead to change the world more broadly. It was a momentous weekend. And as the young people and their powerful allies congratulated each other, 
Food Foundation facilitator Florence Pardo noticed a raised hand. We've got a question from Izzy at the top. I don't actually have a question. It's just, and I'd like to tell all the um, decision makers here that in the next coming months, I would really like to see on the news that there has been some change. Uh, you haven't just come along to this session, listen to our, our ideas. I know that all of you will bring them up in your respective areas, but I would really, really like you to push for them and make some sort of change. Izzy might have to wait some time before she sees any of their policies ratified by Parliament, but it doesn't mean that these young people are without power. Saban wanted to know if carbon labelling can help us make better choices. So um, a Mondra carbon label or a Mondra eco-impact score mimics very closely the EU energy labels, which you probably have seen on the on electric appliances. Max Eugenie from Mondra Carbon Labeling. It utilizes a grade from A plus to G and a kind of a familiar red, amber, green methodology, uh, making sure that the impact is as visual um, and as easy to to comprehend, uh, you know, whilst you're walking down the supermarket aisle. Back in 2007, it had been a landmark move. Tesco led British supermarkets in its commitment on climate change with a carbon label on all its products. PepsiCo, Innocent and Boots joined a government-backed pilot scheme to measure the footprint of all the products on the shelves. But it was way ahead of its time. Subhan asked Max, what happened? Carbon labelling had a false start at Tesco in 2007. What did it aim to do and why did it fail? The methodology simply was not scalable enough. Uh, you know, the Carbon Trust, uh, Tesco's partner during this campaign, uh, estimated that it was going to take something like years, if not decades, to assess all of the environmental impact of all of the Tesco's products. But what's more, the rise of awareness that fuels the sort of initiatives nowadays simply did not exist back then. You know, now nowadays, 80% of consumers would like to see brands do more to explain their environmental impacts uh, on the planet. Uh, and public-facing personas like uh, David Attenborough and uh, Greta Thunberg, as well as initiatives and campaigns like Extinction Rebellion, are all really forcing us to think about sustainability and make it make it something that's very central to all of our actions. And this is definitely feeding into the way that brands are beginning to communicate and address this. Initiatives that initially started uh, at the kind of smaller grassroots brands now beginning to make their way into the agendas of the multinational corporates around the world. The Food Foundation's Will Nicholson and Rebecca Toby are experts on labelling and say that although carbon labelling means well, it's complicated. But could carbon labelling change the way we buy? Um, yeah, I think I think it can change behaviour. Any, any label that gives customers information is potentially going to help them to change behaviour. But I think we're in danger of oversimplifying it sometimes because, for example, if you if you want to buy a, a washing machine and you can see the energy label on that washing machine, you, you can compare that to another washing machine that's going to do pretty much the same thing. I don't think that it's as easy to do that when you're comparing food choices. So I, I do think we need to be a little bit careful of just giving, giving traffic lights to the carbon footprint of food products. In, in the meat aisle, for example, in a supermarket – whether you would clearly be able to say this bit of beef is better than that piece of beef um, and whether it will help you to 
um, help customers to make the swaps that, that we want them to, because you might find that the lentils is three aisles over. So how do they make a comparison between the carbon footprint of beef versus the carbon footprint of, of the lentils in the in the dry goods? I think one of the, the slight issues with, with carbon labelling is that carbon footprint is obviously only one piece of the jigsaw puzzle when it comes to assessing the environmental impact of food. So as Will said, there's a there's a question around carbon labelling. Is it just a beef label? Is it just a beef metric? Because when you compare carbon footprint of beef to anything else, it's going to be far and away um, a lot higher. But, you know, if we, we then, you know, so if you're a consumer and you're comparing chicken v beef, great. Chicken looks like it's got a low carbon footprint. But actually, you know, are we taking other impacts that chicken can have on the environment into account? So, for example, a lot of chicken is fed soy. Soy can obviously contribute to deforestation, which isn't great for the environment either. So there's questions as to as to the utility, I think, of, of carbon labelling uh, as a holistic measure. So back to the drawing board? Not quite. Michael Gover, a few years ago now, was uh, was talking about a meta-label. So the idea being that you would, you'd bring together all the sort of food and nutrition information we currently have on labelling with... Um, environmental or carbon information so in a way you're sort of uh, you've got one label that tells the customer everything they need to know um, and that's a really interesting concept that I think could be explored particularly because there are so many different labels out there um, so you know unless there's a unless labeling systems are mandatory so everybody has to use them and they have to use the same label so that customers can easily differentiate between them then certainly in my mind there's a big question mark as to how useful these labels actually are and how much they're sort of nice to have um, rather than anything else. Back at the National Food Strategy Zoom conference many of the young people were worried about the role of meat in the food system. Charlie represented their views to Henry Dumblebee and the team. I just want to say that we need to work on sustainable meat and keep a controlled amount of it because it can cause things like events like deforestation. Methane gas can be created by animal stock and generally meat production. While it is meat is good for humans generally, it has to be kept at a balanced level. Farmed animals have had a bad reputation as we become more climate conscious. Their methane emissions contribute massively to global warming. But we need their munching and natural fertilisation to create the perfect habitat for the bugs that keep our soils healthy. Philip Limbury is the global CEO of Compassion and World Farming, author of Farmageddon and Dead Zone, Where the Wild Things Were, and has recently been crowned Food Systems Champion by the United Nations. Saban found out that if anyone has the answer to the place of meat, it's Philip. What we need is to have fewer animals on our farms and those animals that we do have, get them back on the land, get them uh, mixed and integrated. You're moving around the land with crops where they're fertilising the land um, naturally with, with, their, with their manure. Um, the, 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 the trouble with is that we're now eating so much meat in this country and as a global population that the planet can't stand it. We've got all of these cows producing huge amounts of methane. We've got chickens and pigs that are eating grain that have been produced from artificial fertilizer and pesticide soaked monocultures that are emitting nitrous oxide which is a, a deadly powerful greenhouse 
gas. Uh, so the thing is, we need to move away from those industrial means of producing meat and dairy, uh, ensure that animals are kept in a way which is regenerative, which uh, that where whereby they're not only being kept healthy naturally, but they're also being kept on soil, which is helping to sequester carbon, which is absorbing carbon from the atmosphere. That's the climate way to go forward. So less and better meat. Make sure your meat comes from good sources that are pasture fed, free range, organic, those kind of things where the animals have been given a better life. Can you personally see a more local meat market in Britain? And what do you think it would look like? I think a, a, a more local um, market for meat and other produce in, in Britain would be a fantastic idea. It would allow people to become better connected to their food and how it's produced. And that's the big bugbear at the moment that consumers are so separated from their food it may be produced in another county or another country or even on another continent and what does it say on the label not very much it says that it's fresh or farm fresh or country fresh what those labels tend to mean is that it's come from a factory farm near or far local markets will enable people to get face to face with the producers ask them questions were the animals free ranging were they produced in a way which enhances biodiversity and brings bees back how was the soil treated was it treated in a way which preserves the fertility for the future and takes carbon out of the atmosphere? That's what a local market can help to achieve. And it's already here. My goodness me, yeah. those tomatoes. Five yeah. different flavours, five yeah. different sorts. Black yeah. cherry, yellow submarines, all sorts. It's all to come. Across the globe, farmers' markets have become a Saturday morning destination. Even in lockdown, as people who want to support their community and their health flock to the kind of stalls that we would usually associate with the Mediterranean. Lovely purslane. Purslane's really good for you. It's got omega-3 oh, in it. Oh, it's got loads of vitamins and minerals, hasn't so it? So it has. Really and chickweed, that's good for your immune system. And have you got some plants with We've got plants we too. First day of spring. I mean, if you want to get cracking and do it yourself, we've got all sorts of plants for you. We've got chives. Regenda Wilson is one of the brains behind growing communities, a visionary localised food system which 25 years ago set out to feed London with planet-friendly produce grown in farms around the city perimeter. It would support the farmers doing the right thing and feed the minds and bellies of London families with regular markets and weekly veg boxes. And from this outpouring of local love came a big idea. Out of how we were running the veg scheme came a model of how we can feed ourselves that we call the food zones. So the food zone starts with where we are, right round where we are, and looks at what we can do close to home. So here in Hackney in East London, Growing Communities has a patchwork farm of small sites where we grow organic salad. And the fantastic thing about that is it needs very little manual labour. It's wonderfully fresh when we get it to people because it's only travelled a couple of miles, usually by bicycle. And um, it gives a fantastic micronutrient hit. The other thing about a mixed salad bag is it allows you to practice Crop rotation, so you can grow lots of different leaves throughout the year and produce an amazing bag of salad that tastes different every time you try it. But a bag of salad isn't going to feed the whole of London. 
We also have a farm in Dagenham where we grow food. We have a lot of covered space so we can grow tomatoes and aubergines and courgettes and beans. We have apricot trees that are buzzing with bees and we have a local beekeeper who is making honey that is then sold through our farmer's market. But most of the food for the veg bags comes from local farms. It comes from farms in Kent and Sussex and Essex and Cambridgeshire and Suffolk. Farms that are local to London but have more space where they can grow food in greater numbers. But then there are times of year where the the food is running out. So there's a we're now right in the middle of what we call the hungry gap. So last year's main crop vegetables, the potatoes and the carrots and the onions are starting to run out. But the new season crops have barely emerged from the ground. So at that time of year, we import more food. So at the moment, our veg bags have some you know, European fennel and aubergine and courgettes in there. So the model, the vision is not that we can create all the food ourselves. The vision is that we grow what makes sense to grow everywhere. So we can start with our own window boxes and have a herb plant, a rosemary bush on our window box. Then we can get hackney salad. Then we grow Dagenham tomatoes. Then we work with the, the, these amazing farmers in in uh, the counties around London. And then when we need to, we import food. I mean, our, our fruit bags do contain bananas every week and the bananas are shipped. They're actually cheap and nutritious and shipping them is really, that means they have a very low carbon footprint compared with some of the food that is flown in from thousands of miles away when it's out of season. So in a supermarket, say, you might see uh, beans on the shelf that have been flown from Kenya and you'll see them all year round because what the supermarket shelves give us is is a perpetual summer. There are always tomatoes on the shelves. There are always strawberries on the shelves. There are always beans on the shelves. And that model is so broken that even when beans are in season in the UK, we could be buying them from British farms Yet the supermarkets are still selling the ones that they've flown in from Kenya at a tremendously high carbon cost for everybody. And good growing isn't just good for the planet. It's become a paradise of biodiversity and wildlife in some of the most unlikely plots of land. Uh, some of our sites are in Hackney Parks. Some of them are on church land. Some of them are on estates. There are bees. There are um, frogs in the ponds there. Children can come and learn about where their food comes from. Local people could come and volunteer, which means it's boosting their mental health, their physical health, their fitness. They're meeting other members of their community. So they're feeling better about everything. Back at the National Food Strategy Zoom conference, Jacob and Georgia had a utopian vision of a local food system that not only fed its community good, fresh food with an almost zero carbon footprint, but created employment too. I think of that as being like an environmental solution and also health because environmentally wise, that means like less like carbon emission and for your health, there'll be like less like preservatives on the food and stuff because there's less like travel. So then it'd be like better for you. Um, I'd also say that it would also be for money because it gives more jobs to people in the UK and give more options to people living under the poverty line. Yeah. But what do kids know? And the other thing we do is we train new growers there. So we've had well over 50 have gone through our system and have learned how to grow food, many of whom are growing 
food on larger farms now. In fact, one of our most recent trainees, she's just got some land and she's creating a farm called Setopia Farm in Greenwich, where she's going to grow food for local people in London. And at the moment on our sites in Hackney, we have two interns from a programme run by an organisation called Feedback, which is the eco-talent programme, which is deliberately geared towards getting young people from underrepresented backgrounds into farming and environmental jobs. So we have two interns, Larissa and Warami, who are working with us now, learning about food growing in London. Organic food, planet-friendly growing, farmers markets and veg boxes harnessing the power of a growing community of producers to feed its neighbours. It's the dream. It's certainly part of the vision of that group of young people pitching to the changemakers, but they wanted to make it affordable and accessible to everyone in the country. Inevitably, organically grown food is not going to be as cheap as conventional food. And that is partly because conventional food is subsidised in many ways. That means we're not really praying the true cost of food. But then it's when there is so much food poverty about, it's impossible to argue for food to be more expensive. What has to happen is that there has to be subsidies for the right sort of growing, the sort of growing that's protecting the planet, the sort of growing that's giving farmers decent jobs, rather than employing migrant labour at tiny salaries. So we need to subsidise the right sorts of farming. We need to have a basic income so that nobody is too poor to be able to buy food for themselves. But yes, we cannot possibly compete with the cheapest food that there is available. Beyond the talk and the politics, growing communities is an example of what can happen when a dream becomes a reality. It's really about uh, creating a vision that the government could adopt and roll out across the whole country. They could be subsidising the sorts of farming that are good for the planet and good for people. They could be subsidising fruit and veg, growing healthy, unprocessed food that's good for people. They could be helping people learn how to cook good fresh seasonal food so that they can make really good nutritious meals at low cost in their own homes uh, very easily. As Londoners desperate to get out of their lockdown lives blinked into the spring sunshine at the Saturday Farmers Market in Stoke Newington, it felt a long way from the queues around the local supermarkets. Distance, but in with the strawberries they grow on the farm for selling through the market, they grow varieties that are really good for taste. But Richenda says it's about much more than where to get your potatoes. I think the supermarket system is very broken. I think there's a lot of food waste, both on the farm and in the supermarkets, that is mopped up by uh, other people, food charities, food banks, um, other veg schemes. I think the, the whole system needs to rethink itself. So what we're doing is not mopping up the waste produced by the supermarket system. We're creating a different alternative system that we think is a much better way of distributing food. There's very little waste in the system. It's supporting local farmers with really good jobs and and it's bringing people really good, nutritious, unpackaged food. We need much more of that for everybody. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll hear more from the young people consulted by the Food Foundation as Abby and Charlie investigate how to promote healthier food. I'll see you then.